the uh, last week in our series, series on Beyond, and we've uh, looked at it from a lot of different angles, and I guess you might say, in a sense, this is the uh, summation of the series, gathering ourselves to God. We've talked about gathering our stuff, we've talked about gathering um, in different aspects, but this morning I want to talk about uh, what it means to gather yourself to God and let Him propel you beyond yourself into the lives of others. Philippians chapter 3 is in many respects um, the heart of Paul's ministry. In chapter 3 verse 3, he gives us a perfect definition of what it means to be a Christian. He says, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he gives his pedigree, all of those things that he was able to accomplish. And then he says, I count them all as garbage, rubbish, for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him. And then we pick it up in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to, the, to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, it's hard to believe it's been four years since Tiger Woods drove his Cadillac SUV out of the garage and into a fire hydrant. The first person to give a report on the news was the chief of police in that county. His name is Daniel Saylor. He said, I found Tiger Woods lying on the ground in front of his vehicle with his wife over him, seeking to attend to his needs. She said she had been inside the house when she heard the crash. She ran outside, she grabbed a golf club and tried to break the back window of his SUV to pull him to safety and bring him to health. Days later, the truth came out. She wasn't in the house. She was in the garage. She didn't take a golf club to try to help him. She took a golf club to try to kill him. 
Her former boss, Jasper Parnovic, who's also a professional golfer, said she would have been better to use a driver. Days later on Fox News Sunday, Britt Hume, who used to be ABC's Washington White House correspondent and is now a senior news analyst at Fox News, was asked what he thought in the aftermath of Tiger Woods' dilemma. He said this, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person is another matter. It's a tragic situation for him. He's lost his family. It's uncertain whether he will be able to have a relationship with his children. But the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news value of the scandal has died down, to the extent that he does recover, will be in large measure, it seems to me, dependent upon his faith. He is said to be a Buddhist. And I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is only offered in the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger is this. Turn to the Christian faith and you can make a total recovery and be a good example to the world. You know what happened after Brit Hume made those comments? All hell broke loose. It would have been better for Brit Hume to announce that he had joined Al-Qaeda You would have thought that he was an arrogant, shallow hypocrite when in reality he was exactly the opposite. He was simply saying in all humility that every one of us needs redemption. Every one of us needs forgiveness. And the redemption and forgiveness we need is only found in Jesus Christ. Years ago in Norfolk, Virginia, there was a priest who became the subject of a newspaper article. His name was Father Quinlan. Thomas Quinlan. The reporter said this, Reverend Quinlan is a 71-year-old chain-smoking, voice-like-sandpaper priest who goes out of his way to offend people. A few years ago on Palm Sunday, he drove a police Harley down the center aisle of his church. Not long after that, he dressed up like Superman to make a point. They keep trying to keep Quinlan in line, but he'll have none of it. He hates to play footsie with authority. He hates the trappings of power. And yet the funny thing is, every church he serves continues to grow. Every church that he serves has people that are launched into ministry. So last year when Thomas Quinlan was struggling with alcoholism, and he was arrested for drunk driving, he went before his congregation, he confessed that he was an alcoholic. And he said to them, I'm willing to resign. And they said, no. We don't want you to resign. We don't want you to leave. We want you to get better. And we are here to help. And according to this reporter, that congregation loved him into sobriety. How do you define repentance? When you think of repentance, what do you think? A guy standing at the football game with a sign that says, turn or burn? (laughs) Repent, the end is near? Or do you think of repentance as a change in behavior? You know, that's how most people see repentance. And yet the word is metanoia in Greek. It means something other than that. It means to change your mind. 
It means to come to agree with God about who God is and who you are. It means to see yourself as God sees you. And you know, in my opinion, there's nobody better in Scripture who sees himself as God sees him than Paul. He's writing Philippians, the Philippians from prison. They are his crown and his joy. Among all of the churches that he has raised up, there is no church with less problems than the church at Philippi, and yet they've got two issues. First, they have two women that are battling their egos with each other. And secondly, they have false teachers in their midst who are trying to create a following by their own magnetism and their own agendas. So notice what Paul does. Paul tells them the gospel again. And he tells them the gospel by using two illustrations, two examples. The first is Jesus, and the second example is himself. And it's that second example, Paul's example of himself, that's the clearest picture of how we are to gather ourselves to God every day. And as we do, God will launch us beyond ourselves into the lives of others. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the recognition in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's he talking about? He's talking about knowing Christ. And the first thing he wants his readers to understand is that he's not at all like the false teachers. He knows he's not perfect. He knows that this side of heaven, no one will be perfect except Jesus himself. And yet he knows when he reflects on his life, all of the changes that have been made in his life since Damascus. And he knows that every one of those changes has not come because he has pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, but because he has allowed the Holy Spirit to have his way with him. And Paul knows that moving on in the faith is going to require the same thing that it's required since Damascus. And he knows that all of the stumbling blocks in his life that will cause him to trip and fall and not become all that Christ wants him to be are always the same thing. Ego, accomplishments, good works, religious pedigree, all the things he once valued, those things will become his stumbling blocks. Nearly 20 years ago, Henry Nouwen died at 64. Henry Nouwen wrote over 40 books. He was a scholar among scholars. He was an amazing person who God had used mightily. He's taught in the finest institutions in America. He's a Catholic scholar, but he understands the gospel. But in the last decade of his life, he gave it all up. He went up to Toronto, Canada, where he became a nurse for handicapped adults. And here's how he describes it. These broken, wounded, completely unpretentious people have forced me to let go of my relevant self. They forced me to let go of the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things. They forced me 
to claim the unadorned self, the self that is completely vulnerable, the self that is completely laid bare, the self that is open to giving and receiving love regardless of accomplishments. That's what Paul means by pressing on. Giving up all of your good stuff for Jesus. Then second, notice the relinquishment. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now notice what he's talking about. Notice what he's forgetting in the past. Not his sins, not his mistakes, not his failures. What he's talking about forgetting are all of the things that he's trusted in. All of the things that have brought him value. All of the things that have given him a sense of worth. A few verses earlier, he says, I consider all of that, all of my pedigree, I consider rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. In other words, what I've discovered is all of my good stuff, all of my accomplishments, all of those things I've valued have not been a bridge to God. They've been a wall. This week I met with a friend who at this point in his life is struggling with God. He said to me, you know, it's a weird thing. I've prayed for months that God would give me a new job. And he has. He's given me a new job and yet it seems like he's taken everything else away from me. In other words, the only time I really experience peace is when everything is working out the way I think it should. I've been there. You've been there. Paul's been there. Paul knows exactly what that's like. He knows what it's like to measure the goodness of God by everything that's happening in your life. And he knows, you know what he says about it? He says it's a fool's game. And that's why he says, I forget everything that lies behind. All of my goodness, all of my achievements, all of my measuring sticks. And I strain forward. To where God is calling me. And third, notice the reach. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what I've thought that meant? That meant buckle down. Spend time with the Lord. Read your Bible. Resist temptation. But you know, this week, I think I got the answer. A friend of mine called and said, can I tell you a story? I said, sure. He said, just a couple hours ago, I got off work. He works most nights. And one of my colleagues said, I'll give you a ride to, my car, to your car. And his car is parked about three or four blocks away. He said, no, I don't need a ride. I, I like to walk. And besides, I want to go to Panera. So he goes into Panera, the same Panera he goes in almost all the time. And he sees the woman at the counter and he says, could I have a hot chocolate and a pastry? 
She rings it up and says, that's 550. So he reaches into his pocket, pulls out his money clip. There's no money on it. And then he reaches in his other pockets and he finds two random dollar bills. He says to her, forget the pastry, I'll take the hot chocolate. She says, that's 2.30. And she just stands there. She doesn't say, I know you, I've waited on you a hundred times, let's make it two bucks even. She sees what he's got and she says, it's 2.30. And he thanks her, probably thank you for nothing. And he walks out with nothing. And he says to me, you wouldn't believe how humble I felt, how humiliated I was. I always have money, but I didn't have any money. You know why I didn't have money? Because the night before, he had given all of his money to a guy in need in his grove. And suddenly it hits me. And I said to him, You know, you've just in an infinitesimal way experienced what Jesus experienced. Remember on the cross, he's thirsty and he has nothing to drink. Why is he thirsty? Because he's poured himself out to such a degree he has nothing left. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he's talking about pouring himself out until nothing's left. He's not talking about accumulating other behaviors. He's talking about letting everything go. Then fourth, notice the reason. Look at verse 16. Only let us hold true to... Let us hold true... To what we've attained. What's he talking about there? Let us hold true to what we have attained. What have they attained? Is it something they've worked for? Is it something they have to hold on to? Something they've gained and they've earned? No, he's talking about grace. He's saying let us hold on to the grace That we've been given. We've attained that grace. Not because of what we've done. But because what Jesus has done. So how do you do that? How do you hold on to what you've attained in Christ? Well a couple of months ago. I think God gave me the answer to that one too. And it was another person I met. Woman came to see me and. She started to tell her story. I could tell she was distraught. She said, you know, I've been living with my fiancé for almost a year. And in the last couple of months, I've come to know Jesus. The same Jesus he knows. And the Holy Spirit has begun to work on me. She didn't say it that way. She just said, I think God's trying to tell me something. I said, what's that? She said, God's been telling me not to sleep with him. And so one night, I'm making up the couch into a bed, and he sees me. He said, what are you doing? She tells him, and he's ticked off. 
He's ticked off primarily because she has made this unilateral decision. Not going to sleep with him. And so they begin to get into a fight, mostly his way. And the yelling kind of increases, and she begins to cry, and through tears, she says to him, listen to me, I love you, I will always love you, I know you have needs, I know you have desires, listen, you can go out and you can do all that you want to do to get your needs met, and I'll be right here for you. I say, what did you say? She said, I said to him, I love you. I'll always love you. You can go out. You can get with any girl you want. And I'll always be here for you. And I said, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus says to you. And to me. I love you without condition. I love you forever, eternally. That will never change. And lest you think that isn't true, read the Old Testament. And so a couple of days later, he joins us. He comes in and says, I'm really mad at you. And I know he's kidding. Not that all are, but I know he is. I said, so you're getting married, aren't you? How'd you know? And then we talk about that. And I said, you know, you know what she said to me? She told me what she said to you. I love you without condition. You can go out and do whatever you need to do. And I'll always be here for you. I said, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus says to you and me. And right at that moment, he grabs her hand. He looks at her with tears in his eyes and says, I will never go anywhere else. It's been over two months. And Jesus has been meeting both of their needs every day and every night. See, that's exactly what Paul's talking about when he says, let us hold on to what we've attained. It's nothing they've earned. It's what Christ has done for them. He has given them his incomparable, unconditional grace and love, and it never changes. But you know what does change? Our desires change in the face of it. You see, in the light of the love of Jesus, everything else pales. That's why Brit Hume said, Jesus Christ is the only one who offers us the redemption and the forgiveness and the love we desperately need. That's why when you gather yourself to God, it happens only one way. It happens by laying yourself down and measuring yourself the way he measures you. And that's always on the cross. For there on the cross... He poured himself out to the point that he says, I thirst. You know why he poured himself out? So that you and I may never have to thirst again. That's what he's talking about, Paul. Gathering himself to God. 
That's how we need to do it. By consistently remembering what he's done for us. And as you come to his table today, I invite you to think about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you give us glimpses of your love all the time. And often it's in the lives of others. Like that woman in her confession. Like that man who reached in his pocket and had nothing because he had given it away. Like Father Quinlan, who needs to be loved into sobriety. Lord, we're gathered here now in this place to come before you at your table. To eat of your bread and to drink of your juice. Father, we pray that as we eat and we drink, that we might remember all that you've done for us in Jesus. That you might be the one who quenches every thirst that we could have. And as we have had our thirst quenched, may we be poured out to a lost and hurting and dying world that they might receive a drink from you as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.